News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Very big change in the United Kingdom starting today, as a matter of fact. Uh, Over the next 48 hours, I think people there will notice a huge difference. Masks are no longer going to be mandatory in public places and schools. And they're even going to be going without COVID-19 passports. What brought all this on? And what is the situation with Omicron right now? Joining us now, Redmond Shannon, our Global News European correspondent. Hello, Redmond. Hi, Simi. This sounds like quite a huge change. Well, it is. Uh, This morning when I uh, turned on my phone, I saw the COVID-19 app, the government COVID-19 app no longer said uh, England is in Plan B. So this is specifically about England, although uh, all four nations of the UK are are loosening restrictions this week, nowhere more so than in England, where, of course, about 85% of the population of the UK lives. So no need for COVID certs uh, in, in large venues and uh, no legal obligation to wear face coverings. Although uh, many supermarkets here are asking people to wear face coverings if they wish to do so, urging them to do so. And uh, the Mayor of London is asking people to continue to wear face coverings on transit. So a bit of a political disconnect from the leadership in England uh, pushing perhaps more freedom uh, and uh, say the the labor led uh, London government uh, saying okay let 's hold back a bit and that 's uh, a hint at uh, hmm. the greater political dynamic of what 's going on here, but certainly mask wearing has never been universal in England at all, so even at the worst the height of things uh, twelve months ago you didn 't see everybody in stores all the time wearing face coverings, and perhaps it was it could be as hmm. as low as sixty seventy percent at times and, and and even less at times. It went back, came back a bit with the omicron wave. But as soon as the government said they're about to loosen things, you could see I saw on the train myself in the last few weeks and on the train this morning, uh, people uh, less likely to be wearing face coverings. So a different culture of mask wearing here is playing into the decision to drop this rule uh, as of today. Okay, so what brought this about? How did it get to this point? Well, the Omicron wave perhaps took off in the UK a little bit quicker and uh, more steeply than it has done elsewhere, uh, including in Canada, although it has dropped off dramatically since the start of January, as it has in Canada. But it's still, per capita, the infection rate in the UK is still higher than it even was at the Omicron peak in Canada. So it's still quite high, but the decision was that hospitals were able to manage with the relatively large proportion of cases that were uh, mild and of course in people not needing hospitalization and the high va- relatively high vaccination rate across across much of the UK so the decision was let's open it up and see see how we how we can go and um, in England that's very much happened today but it has been uh, things have been sort of uh, signaled to be relaxed over the last few weeks so People are going to watch closely here and around the world to see how the UK deals with opening up. I'm sure governments, uh, the gov- provincial governments in Canada will be looking to the mm-hmm. four different parts of the UK to say, well, they're ahead of us in terms of infection. How is it going to pan out when, when they loosen out? So uh, that will play into a lot of decisions around the world, I imagine. I can imagine, too. Uh, Redmond, just, you talked about the kind of political aspect of this, about how some levels of government are saying, no, we have to be more careful. How do the people, like according to polls from what you know, how supportive is the the general public in saying, yeah, let's get rid of all this? 
Well, I think people are sick and tired of it, as they are everywhere. So there's, in, in one way, there's a, it, there's a feeling that um, people are, are eager to get on with normal life, very much so. But there is a, I was listening to a phone-in show this morning on BBC and uh, radio here, national radio, and people, you know, there's a mixture of views. Some people are very nervous. They're, you know, if they haven't contracted COVID-19 yet and they perhaps live with someone who's vulnerable, they want to protect themselves when they're out and about because they do not want to take it home. Uh, and you still have a relatively high number of deaths here. On Tuesday, the UK reported 439 new deaths in one day. Now, there was a bit of a lag from the weekend, but nonetheless, the average is about 260 at the moment. That's not insignificant. If we go back two years, so reporting 260 deaths in one day from an infectious disease is, is a huge number, mm-hmm. especially given what's happened in the past. So pe- a lot of people are reticent. I imagine a lot of people who are boosted and or who have had COVID, which is a high number of people, are feeling, well, I've done everything I can do. I want to move on. So it's very much split. And as you say, it's political too. When the House of Commons uh, came back for the first time after the March 2020 lockdown, um, you know, you had one side of the House of Commons coming back in full. The government side, almost no MPs wearing masks. And then on the opposition benches, almost all MPs wearing masks. And that is filtered down through society, as you can imagine. Oh, yes. And it seems like that's the case everywhere. Uh, Redmond, thank you so much for this. You're welcome, Simi. Bye. It's Redmond Shannon, our Global News European correspondent. This mask issue is so interesting. So the UK is easing COVID restrictions. Masks are becoming essentially optional. Asking that question this morning, like if that were the case here, would you be one of the people wearing them? Or would you, for whatever your reason may be, uh, you know, maybe you just haven't been comfortable wearing them all along. You only did it because you had to. Would you drop it or would you continue to wear one? What would be your take on that? I got an email from Dwayne who said the second they rescind the mask mandate is the minute I ditch it. I think a lot of people would probably agree with Dwayne. Not everybody. I I would, in certain circumstances, I would definitely still wear mine. But what's your take on it? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about spending time outdoors. It is something that has become really a lifeline to so many of us during the pandemic, enjoying the outdoors, camping, hiking, walking, you name it. Well, now the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC is raising some concerns about that. They feel that the provincial agency that is responsible for facilitating and managing outdoor recreation on Crown Land isn't necessarily, you know, getting enough priority. Let's talk more about this. Joining us is Louise Patterson, who's the Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Council. Louise, thanks for being back with us. Thank you so much, Simi, for having me on your show. Whenever we've talked to you in the past, it's generally been about how busy outdoor sites are right now. Has that trend continued? Yeah, that's that trend has continued. You know, we, you know, over the last few years in in the Sea to Sky area, just alone, we've seen, you know, a hundred and fifty percent increase over uh, two thousand nineteen. And the reports that we hear from across the province, it's sort of like echoes the same. So that's a lot of people. You know, that's a lot of people out outdoors, and it's it's great, but it is just creating some some issues uh, that that we've been try- that we're trying to highlight. Yeah, like what kind of issues? 
or just the you know like this this demand for outdoor recreation really is translating into a lot of pressure on trails, on campsites, and and also natural areas. So, so we're seeing a lot uh, you know really high usage, and it means that you know like a lot of infrastructure, recreational infrastructure is being degraded because it's not being maintained, it's not being it's being overused, and we're seeing vandalism in 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 quite a few areas as well. Along with you know a lack of basic facilities, the outhouses, the wildlife-proof garbage containers, and and signage, and there's just not enough staff um, to to plan and to manage these these uh, these trails and 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 campsites. Is this everywhere, or are there certain spots that are perhaps hotter than others? You know what? I think this is a very widespread problem. Of course, you know, like in in the in the low mainland, sea to sky, you know, you've got such a such a high population that wants to kind of get get outdoors. It's 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 a huge issue there. But but you know, we hear reports uh, actually just like in the last few days, we've been getting a lot of emails from people that are very concerned who who are talking about you know you know you know areas where they used to go. It's just it's no longer safe because uh, because of vandalism, because of overuse. Um, so, you know, we're really hoping that uh, the, the province will, you know, decide to kind of tackle this. We did see last year, you know, a, a recognition of the need to invest in recreation. They, um, the, 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 our lo- yeah, sorry, our provincial government invested $83 million uh, of new money in, in BC parks that they will receive over three years. And we are hoping to see you know, a, a funding boost to the other recreation agency that oversees uh, recreation on, on crown lands outside of parks. Um, it's called Recreation Sites and Trails, you see, and unfortunately, it, like not a lot of people may know about them, but our, our campaign is also trying to kind of just raise the flag and, and say, hey, you know, like something needs to be done on the rest of uh, on the rest of Crown land too. Right. So do you feel it's just kind of gotten under the radar, perhaps? It's Is it maybe not the season to be paying attention to it? Yeah, no, I mean, this has actually sort of like been, uh, you know, an ongoing issue, um, you know, like it, it's been going on for like decades, just a, a really low recognition of the important role that this agency plays. You know, this, this agency is kind of overseeing 20,000 kilometers of trails wow, uh, yeah. that, that, they, yeah, that they manage in partnership with, uh, you know, recreation groups, uh, um, indigenous communities and, and local governments, uh, along with uh, at least a thousand recreation sites. So it's been going on for, for, for a while, but we're just really seeing, just like the, observing like the impacts on, on the land now. And yeah, and, and something just needs to be done. Are we behaving ourselves on uh, out in the backcountry there, Louise? Are we not doing a good <laughs> enough job when we go out there? Yeah, you know, I think we can all improve. You know, we're definitely seeing that a lot of people uh, getting outdoors, a lot of people who may not have spend a lot of time in the outdoors. So I think, you know, there there is a need to just become educated on, you know, how we can safe, how we can be responsible in, in the outdoors as well. And, you know, the Outdoor Recreation Council and many of our members are, tr- are trying to do what we can do, but there really is, an, a, you know, a need and a role for, for, for an agency like Recreation Sites and Trails BC to, 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 to reinforce those behaviours that we really need to see, because we do know that vandalism is a growing issue in a lot of, in a lot of places. Why? Why would people do that? <laughs> I I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe just that. Maybe people that do that. Maybe, maybe there's this feeling that somebody will clean up. You know, and we see you know big you know uh, 
lots of stuff kind of being being left out the, out, 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 outdoors. You know, it could be you know uh, discarded uh, building materials, uh, beds, oh, couches. You're kidding me. <laughs> and just you know, just like general littering too. So just maybe you know, maybe that's just feeling. Oh, you know, somebody else will clean up, but that's just not the case. You know, BC is a it is a it's a huge province. Like we all need to really do our part to make sure that we leave it in a in a better place. Oh, that is so true, Louise. There's nothing that enrages <laughs> me quite like seeing those pictures of camping in the backcountry where people have just left all their garbage there. Yeah. Like that just makes me want my head wants to explode. <laughs> and that happens. It feels like a lot. Yeah, you know, like in you know, we 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 see lots of reports from chill, you know, the chill chill areas, sea to sky, you know, that 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 hikers, um, you know, ATV years are kind of coming across these sites, and you know, they do their best to then kind of clean up. But you know, I, I do think that we we just we need to kind of create this campaign, you know, to kind of you know, like it, it really is everybody's responsibility to kind of make sure that uh, you know that we take you know we whatever we pack. Out, we, we, oh, whatever we pack in, we pack that out again, um, because it's just—it's such an eyesore. It's—it's—it's—you it's, know—it's potentially, you know, like an environmental problem too. You know, if it gets into, you know, into rivers, <clears throat> and also like it's just a lack of respect. You know, so we yeah. need, we do all need to kind of just show greater respect for for for, for the land and and for other recreation uses. Okay, too. so what would you like? What's the message you want to send to the government here on this? <laughs> We are asking all our supporters. We are asking British Columbians to uh, to contact our local MLA and and let them know that that more support is needed for recreation on, on Crown land. Specifically, you know, we we would like to see just a larger uh, budget for for recreation sites and trails. BC. This is a this is an agency that has got an eight million dollar operational budget every year. And, and as I said, you know, they, they oversee 20,000 kilometers of trail, more than 1,000 wreck sites. They just need more money. They don't have the capacity to, to, to look after it and create safe uh, recreational experiences for, for British Columbians. So to go to our website or our Facebook page, orcbc.ca, and um, we <clears throat> have provided a, an easy tool, uh, mm-hmm. tool that will make it very easy for people to take action. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Louise Pedersen is the Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. They just want to put it on the government's table, like just put it in their line of sight and let them know that they think that there should be more attention paid to, you know, taking care of the outdoors. So they've launched a campaign. They're calling on the government uh, and people to support increased operational funding for recreation sites and trails BC in the upcoming this is Mornings with Simi. Well, we talked this morning about the elimination of mask mandates in places like the UK. They're not the only country and jurisdiction that is considering just doing away with COVID restrictions in light of Omicron. Turns out Denmark also doing something like that. Joining us now is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter. Hi, Shane. Hi, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. So first off, what are what's the case situation like there? Uh, in a word, awful. Uh, we recorded a record high, just over 51,000 cases today. Never seen numbers like that. And it sounds like things are going to go even higher to what extent uh, is a giant question mark and seems sort of dependent on uh, the damage that this new BA2 uh, variant uh, will wreak on our society here. Okay, so if the cases are still really high, then what's going on with restrictions? Yeah, that's a tale of two stories and a uh, uh, an assumption. So 
The two stories uh, are to do with statistics. So while we have record high infections, never seen them higher. I mean, unbelievable numbers. Hospitalizations, like just overall admissions, are now just a couple of figures away from record highs as well. But uh, the Danish government is pointing to uh, intensive care admissions and fatalities, uh, ventilator numbers, uh, all of which are, in the case of deaths, has not spiked along with the infection curve, although they're not entirely going down either. But with intensive care numbers and ventilator numbers, while the infection curve goes soaring to new heights, they have steadily, day after day, week after week, been going down. And now they're at the lowest we've seen uh, since before this Delta Omicron, now BA2 wave struck, uh, sort of the area of August, right. September of last year. Okay, so they clearly feel then that they are on the the backside of this thing, the downhill slide. They feel like they are. The other big assumption they're making, Simi, is they feel that uh, with vaccination, uh, Denmark has an extremely high rate of vaccination. We're now over 80% of people with two doses, uh, over 60% of people with three uh, and the Danish government uh, just yesterday came out in the press conference and said, we feel that we are very much on the cusp of this Omicron wave combined with vaccinations, sort of instilling a herd immunity on the population. They think there's, they think there's a minimum of 1.5 million people uh, since roughly around Christmas time that have uh, been infected in Denmark to wow. date. Uh, so between vaccinations and sort of the immunity of recovering from infection they're banking that that will get us through there's a key word there is they're banking on that right so how is the public taking all this well i mean people are sort of battered um we've been going through as you guys and went around the world has wave after wave after wave uh i'm seeing you know people are are again more cautious uh you see people making efforts to kind of give you a wide berth when you're in the grocery store uh, things like that. Uh, but there's there's this almost sense of like, what can you do? I mean, the Omicron wave has just rolled over us. Just unbelievable. I mean, it, uh, six months ago, we, we wouldn't imagine we'd be doing 50,000 cases a day. Uh, and it just seems like we're just getting punched so often and so frequently now that people are just punch drunk. They just are just, let's just get through this. Let's just get this pandemic over with. They're grasping at anything to kind of find some kind of hope and, and, uh, and you know, move forward. Right. So, uh, it, it's interesting. And then, of course, we have this new variant, which has created a whole other problem. Was the hospital, like, were hospitals able to keep up, Shane, or what happened? No, hospitals have been pushed, uh, were pushed really to the brink. They have been largely been easing uh, for most of the country. There's hot spots, right? Like Metro Copenhagen, where most of the population uh, is sort of centered. They're obviously having some problems in other hot spots around the country. But a lot of the hospitals in other areas are now kind of coming off emergency footing. Because what we're seeing is a lot of hospitalizations, but they're shorter hospitalizations. People aren't as sick. They kind of go in for a day or two, uh, maybe a few, a little longer, and then they're out again. Uh, into, like I said, intensive care numbers are just they're steadily heading down. I mean, they're, they're not even hinting at going up. So that has taken some pressure off the hospitals. The other subcontext of that, Simi, is and it's not just hospitals, but <laughs> everything, and I'm sure you guys are experiencing this as well, it's that the Omicron infection wave has just ripped through society to such an extent that staffing literally everywhere uh, has become a giant problem. Schools are struggling to find teachers. There's schools here with, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the, right. of the teachers that are out sick. Hospitals, huge numbers of staff out sick, uh, that kind of thing. So it's like two crises at play. And now we're looking at possibly an influenza wave to come as we see countries like France and uh, places like that are finally seeing an uptick there, which could be another 
another big blow. Uh, okay, interesting times for sure. We'll have to check back in with you. Shane, thank you. Yeah, I'll just add before I go, Samia, this BA2 variant, uh, the Denmark epidemiologists here have it pegged at about one, one and a half times more infectious than Omicron, oh, which is stunning. So look out. Yeah, no kidding. Look out. Thank you for that. That is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter. They're eliminating all kind of restrictions, most pandemic restrictions next week in Denmark, even as Shane points out, they are still struggling with a high number of cases. Is that just the way now that other jurisdictions are doing that? This is Mornings with Simi. This pandemic has brought challenges to so many industries, and in particular right now, the childcare industry. They are in a state of, well, confusion, really, about the rules. They feel, I think, that they have been left on their own to deal with a lot of this. Now, the provincial government hosted a virtual town hall yesterday to try to address some of the challenges facing parents and child care operators. But let's find out how that went. Joining us now is Allison Merton, who's the Director of Early Years at Collingwood, Collingwood Neighbourhood House. Allison, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Good morning, Simi. Can you give us an idea, first of all, Allison, about some of the challenges that child care has been going through? Some of the challenges are when the new guidelines came in last week, there was no um, reasoning behind it. We went from, you know, quite a a tightly controlled process in terms of, um, you know, if you had COVID and what the process was with that, to then doing almost a complete 360 and having um, no processes in place where it was just like, you know, now there's no self-isolation for close contacts and things like that. So childcare providers and families were left a little bit shocked and confused over the new guidelines. So having the town hall last night was great. I mean, it provided a lot more background information, which we needed, but that might have been helpful before the guidelines were distributed. Right. I did feel a big butt coming there for sure. <laughs> so how how did it go? Like, what about the information that came out of it? It was useful. It, it was useful in terms of, you know, understanding why these new processes are happening. You know, they are obviously looking at COVID-19 now being just an upper respiratory infection as we move forward. Um, they talked about the inability to keep up with contact tracing. They talked about exposures happening prior to people even knowing that they had COVID and showing symptoms. So it made a lot more sense. Okay, so will this help, do you think? Or what is what is the situation like right now for the childcare situation at Collingwood Neighbourhood House? Um, we are still in the midst of it. Um, we've had a rough few weeks um, and we continue to be there. Our parents have been amazing. Um, what we're doing right now is, you know, we, we will need to continue to work together to make sure that staff, families um, are monitoring themselves and the children, you know, so we can make good informed choices about whether children and staff should be in the program on days where they're probably not feeling their best. Yeah. How does that work then, Allison? Is it, has that been a difficult conversation with parents to say, you know what, someone like this child has the sniffles or this child isn't feeling well? And that must <laughs> yeah. be tough because, I mean, parents rely so much on daycares. It has been, it's been very tough. It has been very tough because there was not that understanding as to why we went. Basically, one day 
you know, to another and, and, and the rules completely change. So there, there's been many difficult conversations. I think the information we received last night will help going forward. We invited our parents to join that as well um, so that they understood where we were coming from. Um, but I think, you know, we're lucky. We have very good relationships with our families where we can have those open and difficult conversations in order to make good decisions and move forward. Um, and, and I expect that they will continue now we have a bit more information to provide them with. Is your daycare center full? I know that I've heard stories of some situations where parents just they didn't or haven't yet gone back to using daycares. We were doing really well, um, you know, and as the restrictions towards the latter end of last year started to lift a little bit, yes, we were full. And now what we've seen, you know, over the past five weeks for sure, as the Omicron came into BC, is that, you know, people are still enrolled, but they're not attending as frequently because they they were, you know, concerned for their children's safety. And quite rightly, these children are unvaccinated. So um, you could see where their concerns were. So you can definitely see that with the inset, like onset of Omicron, where that had an impact on how people were thinking. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. So what are you hearing from parents then, you know, about the next few weeks? Are they comfortable with these guidelines? We haven't heard from them yet in terms of, you know, like I say, we invited them to a town hall because I really think it's important. They have the information that we have as well. So I will be interested to see today what their feedback is. Um, and once we can walk through processes, we're going to create our, our new processes now based on the information we received last night and the guidelines. So once we distribute them, we'll be having conversations with them to find out what their comfort level is. Okay, so it sounds like this is still in a bit of a state of flux, Allison. It is. We are in transition, that is for sure. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. You too, and good luck. That's Allison Merton, Director of Early Years at Collingwood Neighborhood House. Just illustrating there this very delicate kind of balance game that's being played when it comes to child care for parents. And, you know, do you feel safe letting your child go there? Or maybe they're not going as often and having to deal with the new rules and the restrictions. And it is a tough one because you're talking about kids under the age of five, right? They can't get vaccinated. And it's tricky for everyone involved there. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, it is tough being in the wedding planning industry these days. They've been hit hard by the pandemic. They're about to suffer even more losses because they're going into a third wedding season operating under restrictions. They would like the government to allow them to hold events under the same COVID-19 protocols as bars and restaurants. But let's find out more about that now. Our Raji Sohal is with us. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, essentially, event planners, wedding planners, what they want is to be able to hold wedding receptions. Because for a lot of couples, the wedding reception is actually more important than people witnessing their vows at the wedding itself. And, you know, people just want to celebrate the couple, let loose, have some fun. But that is what the health minister is concerned about. Because the issue with those organized events and receptions is that you tend to know the other people there, the other guests. So you're likelier to mingle. Very, and, yes, and get very familiar. Yeah, and you haven't seen people for a while, given the COVID-19 restrictions. We haven't seen people for a long time. But then, especially because these are multi-generational events and you have that mingling, then we know that the elderly are at greater risk. And if you're inviting grandma, she wants to come. And if you're inviting a, you know, an older aunt that hasn't you haven't seen for a while, you, she wants to come. It's a hard decision for those families to make if they have to make it. So 
just not having those events is what Dr. Bonnie Henry hopes is going to like scale us back from these numbers going um, through the roof. And Dr. Henry says that riskier behavior also includes things like dancing, right? That proximity to other people. But if you talk to an actual wedding planner, so someone for whom that is their job to plan weddings, they'll tell you that none of these challenges are things that they can't handle. So they want the province to change their tune. And I talked to Emma McCormick. She's the owner of The Good Party. It's a wedding and events planning company in Victoria. They've done a lot of weddings under all of these protocols. So over 60 weddings during the pandemic. And she says they have a proven track record of operating in a safe way, following all the protocols that they're required to. And actually, if you check out their event photos online, the proof is there. It's like, yes, they actually have been very creative about following the rules, everything from signage to uh, distancing measures, very clear communication with the guests before they even arrive. And she said people are just so happy to be there. So they feel like a sense of gratitude and it's not that hard for them to follow the rules. So I thought that was interesting to hear. Well, she said in the summer of 2021, they were allowed to have dancing if outdoors and it had to be spread out and the tent had to have an opening on both sides. And they did that and she said it was great. But she said after that, when there was no dancing, they had to get creative. So we've had comedy acts, we've had live performances, um, we've had music bingo. Um, and also clients have just chosen whether or not dancing is important to them. If clients really want a big dance party right now, they're the ones who have chosen to postpone or not plan their weddings until a later date. That is so interesting. I can see that too, is that if you really want it a certain way, you're going to wait for it. Yeah. And she also, she made the point that her event company, they've been doing this for a long time. They are professionals. She has a huge team and that they're able to follow the rules because they are professionals. And she said that one of her proposed solutions for the government would be allow these receptions to happen, but just that people should be allowed to only have them have the wedding reception if they hire a wedding planner such as yourself. All of the events um, that go ahead and should have a professional event planning team. And I think that that's a big piece as to whether the rules are being followed or not. If it's a backyard event and people are kind of doing what they want, not necessarily including a COVID safety plan and not necessarily having the proper vendor team involved, I think it is a more risky situation. But I do believe that if there's a professional event planning team present, then some of those risks are mitigated. So I thought that was an interesting solution to propose, Simi, but also who can hire a wedding planner? So she told me that the average uh, wedding right now in BC, that this is just an average, is about $50,000. And like I, I myself, I got married a few, several years ago now, um, but I couldn't hire a wedding planner on my budget at the time. And like many of our listeners that meant that I just went, you know, planned it myself. But I think this is another one of those examples where I think if we peel some layers off of the press conferences and the public health orders and try to see like, what is the thinking behind this? I think we can see that the province has to balance the risk posed by certain activities. And then this issue of equity, right? There are so many ways that the pandemic's already exasperated this divide between those who can afford certain safeties and then those who can't. Even if it comes down to like little things like N95 masks, they are pricey. Not everyone can get them. So not everyone has access. So I think like someone who wants to spend, say, 
$10,000 to have a wedding, they're not necessarily in the arena of being able to afford an event planner. Exactly. Does that mean that they don't get to have a wedding reception? That seems wild to me. Meanwhile, someone who spends 60000 does get to have that reception. All because they can spend the money to enforce the rules. Exactly. So, And then furthermore, like, how would the government police and enforce who's following safety protocols at a reception? I can't even imagine how they would go about doing that. I can't either. And the thing is, you know, and I had emails on this because I know we talked about it as well earlier in the week. And people, I remember one woman's email in particular where she said that she'd gone to a wedding uh, at the end of the first wave before the second wave. So I think it was like September 2020. And she was a bit nervous about it. But she said, you know, she watched as the night progressed and mm-hmm. people drank more and, you know, uh-huh. got more relaxed. And all of a sudden people were getting very like huggy and touchy feely. And she said it just became too much for her because she thought, you know, we started out trying to do the right thing. But then when you get a couple of hours into it, it, the inhibitions are gone. Yeah, I hear that. I was also pressing Emma from the good party about that issue. And and it sounded like her and her team, uh, they have so much experience that they actually do a lot to mitigate that kind of risky behavior. Again, they're professionals. They've they've had 60, more, more than yeah. 60 weddings under their belt over the pandemic. So if someone's just going for a backyard wedding DIY style, or spending, you know, somewhere in the lesser range of maybe like $10,000 on their wedding, um, and they don't have someone to monitor that to stay on top of it, a wedding planner to be on top of all the safety protocols, of course, it's going to get slippery. It's yeah, that's a very good word for it. Slippery. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a bumpy rollout, to say the least. On January 1st, in the city of Vancouver, a new bylaw came into effect where you were charged 25 cents for using a disposable cup. Now, the idea behind this was to encourage people to use fewer disposable cups or have them bring their own. That's a nice idea. And yes, we should try to do that when we can. But is it practical in all settings? Turns out, no, it is not. Far too many examples of this just going wrong for so many people and becoming a a burden as well, which led to last night's Vancouver Council meeting where they voted unanimously to, well, revisit the idea. But does that mean it's actually going to be gone? Joining us now to talk more about this is Rebecca Bly, Vancouver City Councillor, who brought up this motion at the meeting last night. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Why did you bring this up again? Well, as you had mentioned in your um, introduction there, there are many examples of where this uh, bylaw in its real-world application is creating um, many inconsistencies, um, certainly feels punitive in the situations where cafes or or restaurants or or retailers won't accept uh, personal cups, which is still, you know, a bit of a hangover from the CDC um, requirement related to COVID. Um, of course, we can use our own cups, but not everybody has gone back to that um, method yet. And um, and we've just been hearing uh, from many many examples um, of all uh, on on all the spectrum, so to speak, vulnerable folks, uh, businesses struggling. Um, consumers struggling. So it was clear we needed to look at this again. Why wasn't any of this considered, you know, before when the bylaw was originally debated? How could it have come as a surprise? 
Well, it's very true. Um, but let me give you one example of what's happening. So, for example, there's a multinational uh, restaurant chain in the city of Vancouver that's actually reduced the cost of their coffee to absorb the 25 cent fee. Um, this would be considered a, a loophole that's now being normalized so that the consumer is not hit with that extra fee and it's being explained at the point of sale um, to the consumer, oh, don't worry, we've reduced the, cup of the, uh, the cost of the, the coffee, you're not actually paying any more. So obviously that's not achieving um, the desired outcome with the bylaw. That was not something that we anticipated in the initial discussion. Right. But what about all the other instances of people who don't have the option? Like, yes, we would all like to reduce single-use plastic and not have as many disposable cups. But what about when you don't have an option? What about going through the drive through What about people who get a gift card? There's so many examples. You're absolutely right. And, and this was a question that, um, of course, this policy was debated two years ago. The rollout was to be last January. Um, and now... It was put on hold last January, and then uh, we actually heard from staff that businesses were anxious to get going because they were already sort of preparing to reduce their um, their inventory of cups in preparation for this. Um, I'm not sure if that how um, widespread that actually is. So I think there were a number of gaps in the report um, that uh, did not address some of the ways that this is showing up, and you bring up an interesting one around um, food delivery apps and um, that the vision of this bylaw does not work with the direction that we're going in terms of um, technology and the way that food is delivered these days. So are you saying that there wasn't enough information provided to councillors about the, the potential impacts of this bylaw? I don't think there was enough critical thinking done when the staff brought the report forward of all the different uh, scenarios where this might actually not work. Another example is a movie theater, for example, charges the 25 cent fee. So I, I think the discussion really focused on a bricks and mortar type coffee shop, which, you know, your local coffee shop, you walk over, you bring your own cup. It made a lot of sense. And I think a lot of the discussion focused on that one scenario. And uh, we did not have enough discussion about all the different variables, all the different scenarios that the consumer is going to interact with, with it, where that 25 cent fee applies. Um, so it, it, I'll honestly say it was it's a it's a learning for me that we have to um, we don't want to be skeptical of the reports that come forward. But but I re- really think in this instance, there wasn't enough. Um, here are some of the concerns we have of how this is going to roll out. And I would expect that to come forward on the on the report. We are our, our report stack. um budget, or sorry, council documents are 700 pages plus, and it's our responsibility to read through them. But of course, this one seemed um, to be highly encouraged by staff um, and was supported unanimously by council. But absolutely, at this point, we need to take a second look at it because clearly it's not rolling out how staff had presented it. So when you say second look, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, rethinking the whole thing, getting rid of it? Like, what does that mean? Well, what it means is in a very short timeline, we have to go back and see, rather than these anecdotal examples and the um, uh, emails that we're receiving and the stories and the phone calls that we're getting from the public on this, which again, um, vary uh, in terms of uh, the examples, it, it means 
staff go back and look at this, collect some data, talk to more of the businesses. Uh, BIAs, for example, um, are were not consulted in the initial rollout. Uh, that would be one place I would certainly st- ask uh, staff to start and come back with um, some data around uh, what's actually happening with this rollout, who's being impacted and to what degree. For example, if you're homeless and you are managed to... Um, um, you know, have a dollar to go get a coffee, and now you're being told that it's a dollar twenty-five. That that's a significant impact. Um, so, as one example, so we need to understand: well, should we be making some uh, adjustments, some tweaks? Is this even the right bylaw at this time? But rather than just repeal it right now, I think we have to be more agile than that. Go find out the information so we can rationalize a repeal. Um, <clears throat> It's also worth mentioning there is no other city in North America that's actually implemented this type of bylaw. So we are we are learning as we go. So rather than confusing the public and the consumer by repealing it and then perhaps rolling it out or perhaps it would never come back. We have to go and do that work right now. Right. Can you understand the public's frustration, though, in this? Because when they hear this, they think, well, why wasn't this done with the initial implementation of this bylaw when you first talked about it? I 100% agree with the public's um, frustration on this. And I think uh, unanimously supported, uh, the council unanimously supported this motion to revisit it. So I think everybody is feeling a little bit um, caught off guard, so to speak, with how poorly um, this is actually showing up in our, um, in our, in our city. And it's really not necessarily changing consumer behavior. And we need to let, uh, new bylaws and new policies settle in to do that. But this one feels particularly punitive and doesn't give the consumer any other option um, other than to pay the 25 cent fee in many situations. Right. And this is going to be the debate we're going to have when staff come back um, by uh, before March 15th, which right. is um, what the direction was. Do you foresee yourself like, could you support it under different circumstances? Or I guess I should ask under which circumstances would you support it? Well, that's actually uh, a great question. I'm, I can't say right now that I see, if staff come back, my, my hope is that they go out in good faith and really critically look at this because obviously it's a policy that they brought forward and it came from our sustainability team and they would quite clearly feel quite passionate about it. And my hope is that in good faith, they're going to go and look and see, well, this is where we've missed the mark and th- these are the recommendations that we would, we would um, suggest. Uh, I'm not going to presuppose at this time what they are. We've heard about options to um, recycle paper cups, for example, single-use cups with recycled BC, so we would have to work with our provincial partners. Um, perhaps there's certain scenarios where this is not going to make sense. I, I don't know. I, have, I'm, I remain hopeful that staff are going to come back with some great options, but at this stage, I don't know what they are Mm -hmm. and the issue in terms of how this is actually showing up in the consumer, in the consumer's experience and in businesses, uh, it needs a lot of work. So my hope is staff are going to go and do exactly what they're supposed to do as being experts in creating these types of policies. But right now it just seems very punitive and um, is going to need a lot of adjustments. Well, I appreciate your honesty on this topic today. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Simi.